Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is the 10th of July 2021. My name is Maria F. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's um, workshop. Our co-host today is Sue L., and I don't know Nancy, I don't think Nancy Jay is here today. If you have any questions or any concerns, please contact either myself or Sue, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. And we just ask if you can just keep your mic on mute at all times during the study today. And if you need to step away from your computer for any reason or your phone, just please disconnect your camera. So now we've turned the meeting over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria, and thank you. It's so nice to see you again. We've missed you, and uh, I want to join in, in everybody um, uh, asking for prayers for your dad. I, I hope that he's going to be up and at him and ready to go, uh, you know, at, at a very early, early date. Um, we have been studying the chapter to wives, and we're done with it as of last week, and we're going to begin the chapter today to the family afterward, which is chapter nine. But before we begin the chapter to wives, what we're going to just do, as is my want, is to review some of the key points of the previous chapter in the previous week's work. And when we study the chapter to wives, on the surface, it might really seem like what we're studying here is being patient, kind, and loving toward the alcoholic, toward the person who is afflicted with alcoholism. And that's very important and that's great, but let's take it a little deeper. And if you remember in the last few weeks while we were going through the chapter to wives, what we also wanna point out is that we as the addict, we as the compulsive overeater, we as the person who has been in trouble with food, be it from the standpoint of an anorexic, be it from the standpoint of a bulimic, be it from the standpoint of someone who achieved massive uh, morbid obesity, we also wanna be loving and kind to ourselves. And that is so much the message that God is asking us to receive from this all important chapter to wives. And that is, as we look at this alcoholic, as we look at this compulsive overeater, the drug addict, the gambler, whatever, we must look at ourselves and it's an illness. And we get so full of self-loathing because we couldn't control our food. We were a prey to misery and depression. Our, our personal lives were in turmoil. We sometimes couldn't make a living. We were just in fear and we were a prey to fear and bewilderment and resentment and confusion. And we were a prey to the comments of other people. And all of a sudden, one day something clicked, hopefully. And if it hasn't, we'll talk about that too. But hopefully for you, it has clicked so we're to a point now where we're in recovery and these things start to heal. And if there's one miracle I appreciate above everything else except my abstinence in this program, it's that God has seen fit to heal me in ways that I didn't even know were broken. And if you're still on that struggle bus 
or if you're new and I'm talking about things that you have not experienced yet, what I'm going to ask you to do is be patient with God, be patient with yourself, and be patient with us. But if you take action, if you take action and start walking to God, God will run to you. And what do I mean specifically by taking action? If you're still in the food, put the food down. If you don't have a sponsor, get one. There are 77 of us on the line right now. And as time goes on, perhaps there'll be some more, but there are 77 people on the line right now. And if you need help when we're done with our questions and answers, you please hang around and let it be known that you need help. And there are people here whose very lives will be enhanced by helping you. We don't help you for, for profit. We don't help you for prestige. We help you because it's part of our program. And it is the only way we know of to invite God into our lives is to help other people. And that is something that is very, very vital to our survival. You're not bothering us. You're helping us stay out of the food for one more day. You're helping God. Very, very important. So what are the, some of the real lessons of chapter uh, eight, two wives? Patience, tolerance, love, and compassion. Patience, tolerance, love, and compassion. And when you see these angers, these, you know, this selfishness is the key to the whole thing. The person's just not sticking to the script. And when people don't stick to my script, or events don't stick to my script, I will jump right into that fear. And fear always transcends into anger for me. Fear is the gateway to anger. If anger is a highway for me, I'm just talking for me, then fear is the entrance ramp. And what I do is I, I go through this so quickly, I'm not even conscious I'm doing it. Something or somebody doesn't stick to my script. That triggers the, that triggers the process. After somebody or something doesn't stick to the script, I start to become afraid because if they're not sticking to my script, maybe I will lose something that I have or I won't get something that I feel that I deserve, that I want, and that will transcend into anger. And for me, that's as, it's as quick as a cat can wink its eye. That's how quickly that process turns to where I need to do a 10 step. One way or the other, I'm either going to do step 10 or I'm going to be standing in line at Kentucky Fried Chicken deciding whether I'm going to get the 21 piece barrel or I'm going to get the 30 piece barrel or whatever it is that they have. Very, very important for me to remember. Okay, that said, let's go to page 122. And on page 122, we are going to begin the chapter, the family afterwards. After what? What are we talking about? The family afterwards. Because a lot of times it just doesn't make sense. What do you mean? After your first meeting? Do you mean after your favorite television program, radio program? No. What we mean very, very specifically by the family afterwards is what happens in the life of an addict after they've had a spiritual awakening or in cases other than mine, 
a spiritual experience. What are the differences between a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience? A spiritual awakening is like what I have. It's very slow in developing. I've had the educational variety of uh, spiritual awakening. It grows deeper and richer over time. Now, Bill Wilson and Fitz Mayo and uh, Hank Parkhurst and some of these guys, they describe a spiritual experience. Boom, boom, boom. Bill describes in his story on page uh, 13, I believe it is, or 14, that God came to him suddenly, that the room filled with a white light, and he felt the presence of God, and he calls Dr. Silkworth over, and he says, have I gone crazy? He, you know, have I gone nuts? And Dr. Silkworth says, my boy, no, whatever it is that you have, you better hang on to it because anything is better than the way you were. So what is the difference between a spiritual awakening, a spiritual recovery, a spiritual awakening is slow in developing and a spiritual experience is very quick, sudden and profound. Bill uses the words sudden and profound. I have never had that. That is not something I have had. And most of the men and women that I have spoken to uh, have not had such a thing either. I don't really know how frequent those spiritual experiences are. Okay, let's move forward. And that's what we're there talking about, the family afterward, after the person who's addicted is in a state of recovery. So let's answer one more question so we don't have to do it in an hour. The number one question, the biggest question that we get is, what is the difference? And this is on vision all the time. If, if this isn't on vision once or twice a week, then I'm a monkey's uncle because this is the number one question. What is the difference between recovered and recovering? Recovering means I'm working toward a spiritual awakening or experience and recovered means I've had one, but I need to maintain it through action so that no matter what is happening, I must continue to work harder and harder at my recovery. And I have this conversation. I know I'm getting a little off track here. So just bear with me, please. I have this conversation with all the men that I sponsor almost every day. And that is, um, we have a permanent, progressive and fatal disease. My friend who lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he likes to say permanent, progressive and fatal. Permanent, progressive and fatal. And so what that tells me is there's no arriving at any point. We must constantly be working at it, that my disease is getting worse and worse, whether I'm eating or not. When you remember chapter three, a man of 30, he remained bone dry for 25 years. His disease kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse, whether he was drinking or not. And what happened four years after he picked up liquor? He was dead, wasn't he? He was dead. And so I have to keep this in mind that if I'm going to settle in to a specific level of activity, if I'm going to settle in to going to these meetings and talking to these people, and that's going to make sense to me, then I'm going to die in the food. 
Let me say that again, because it's very, very vital. And I know that we're wired to forget it. So the only way I can retain this information is to teach it to other people. This is what I want to repeat because it's so vital. Unless I am willing to do more and more and to shake things up and do different and more and different and more, I'm going to die in the food because the disease will catch me from behind. This is a permanent, progressive, and fatal disease. And I must continue to look for ways to expand and enlarge and perfect my spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. That's a very, very important warning. And on page 14 of the big book at the very bottom, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of working with others as he had worked with me. That paragraph tells me what I need to know. And so when we read the family afterwards, we are talking about after the person has achieved a modicum of recovery. <sighs> okay, let's crack open this chapter, page 122, and we're going to see a little archaic language here in the very first sentence. It says, our women folk, and I can see some of you cringing, our women folk, what? But that's the language of the book. So let's just go with it and let's not, let's not get our, our feathers too bristled. Our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who is recovering. There's that word. Perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflation. Now, again, at the risk of sounding very redundant, I want to go over what we've just read. And instead of turning it to another person, which it, it's very applicable that way, and that's the original and the surface intent of it, let's turn it on ourselves, okay? Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of the family and myself should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflation. And what that word deflation can conjure up is humiliation. And that's not what we're talking about. The deflation is strictly ego. And how do I deflate my ego on a regular basis? I work the steps and help other people. It is very, very critical for me to gather that understanding of myself as an addict, to gather that understanding that in my self-talk, in, in what goes on in my brain, if I exposed it to the light of day is very often very, very abusive. I was riding in a car with my then wife. I'm going back now. Oh, I'm going back a good 25, 28 years. I don't even think my daughter was born yet. My daughter is 26. She's going to be 27 in December, but I don't think she was born yet. So I'm going to go back at least 27, 28 years. We were driving in the car and I made a mistake. And I went down a wrong street 
and I started to call myself names and I started to berate myself. And my then wife put her hand on my arm and she said, Harlan, if you spoke to your friends the way you speak to yourself, would you have any? Very, very profound question. If you spoke to your if friends like you speak to yourself, would you have any? And you know, the answer to that question is none that are sane because only an insane person would take that kind of abuse from me. And that was an eye-opening situation. So when I see deflation, oftentimes in my own mind, I'm thinking about humiliation and it's exactly the opposite. I must have a deflated ego for God to be of maximum help to me in my life because, <clears throat> excuse me, it's really hot here. It's, it's blast furnace hot here. It's 111. This, it'll be 111 by today. We're in a high heat warning. And 111 isn't even that, you know, I've seen much more outrageous temperatures, but it's really blast furnace hot here. So my voice is definitely paying the price. Excuse me. Okay, <clears throat> sorry. The, I'm, I'm continuing now with the paragraph. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude towards himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected. We find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. Now I want to talk to you about something that happened in my life that is very, very uh, applicable to this paragraph. And I want to share this with you because I think I'm not the only one here who has this issue. I was taught when I was a little boy, a little boy, three, four, five, six years old. And I was taught this incessantly. Here's what they taught me. Lose weight, Harlan. And if you lose weight, everything will be okay. And when I was six and seven, I did the best I could to diet down. And I restricted my intake of food and I lost some weight. Guess what didn't happen? What didn't happen was that the world bowed down to me and the world opened up like the Red Sea and gave me just what I wanted. And people made me feel wonderful and everybody loved me. And when I would walk down the street, the birds would sing and the cartoon characters would come out of the woods and none of that happened. So as the book tells us to be patient, and the book tells us about how we perceive the recovery of others. What was very important to me is to gain an understanding that in my own life, in my own life, when recovery did happen, it didn't happen the way I thought it was going to. It didn't also happen the way I thought it was supposed to. I was 700 pounds at one time. Then I lost a lot of weight and I went into a big relapse and I gained a bunch of weight back. 
And then 1998 came, I was living in Eugene. I was losing my wife. I, everything was going crazy. And I got into recovery in Oregon and I've been in recovery for 22 years. Let me assure you of something in case nobody has told you, there is, I've examined this book very closely over the last many, many years. And I read it every day. There's not a day that goes by I don't read from this book. Not a day. I'm on the vision meetings, just like you. Now I'm walking around for a lot of it, you know, because I walk in the morning because Lord knows to walk now, you'd be insane. You'd, you'd melt. I mean, you'd just, you'd evaporate. So I do my, I do three miles a day, six days a week. But I've been through this book a million times and I have never found the sentence in the book that reads like this. Now that you're in recovery, everything is going to go your way. I have not stumbled upon that sentence in the book. I have not stumbled, stumbled upon a sentence in the book that says, now that you're in recovery, everybody in your life is going to do exactly what you want them to do. And they're going to follow your script. I have never found that part of the book. And I have never experienced that in my entire life. So as we look at the recovery of others, and I'm going to continue to bring this back just as much to a personal thing as I ever will in how we look at others, because ultimately, who is the only person that we are with from birth to death? Ourselves. And who is the only person that has been with you through all the binges, through all the purging, through all the bulimia, through all the restricting, through all the everything is you. No other human being, they may be your wife, your husband, your brother, your sister, your child, your parent. They have not been with you through everything. And so we need to forgive ourselves. And there's also another entity that gets a lot of acrimony in this equation. A lot of dissatisfaction gets heaped upon who? God, we get mad at God. Why do a lot of people struggle with this idea of a higher power? Because we have called God's name and it seemed that God didn't help us. We have binged and prayed for uh, weight loss. We have purged and we have been anorexic and prayed that we could stop doing that. And we indeed could not. So God gets a lot of blowback in our minds because he just wasn't measuring up to what our ideal was. And so we have to learn that whether we're in recovery or we're not in recovery, we are never going to rise above the level of a human being. No matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of human being. And as a human being, there's going to be challenges. You betcha. That's why we have step 10 and 11 and 12. That's exactly why. Otherwise, we would come into the program and we would achieve a modicum of recovery and we would be done. And the, the last sentence of the book would be, and good luck to you in your future endeavors. 
and we're glad we could be of service to you. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says, as we trudge the road of happy destiny. What does trudge mean? It means to walk with purpose, to walk with purpose. It's very, very important that we remember that the book is telling us all through the book that this is going to have to be a continuous process. What does it say in 10? Continue, continue. Three times in that paragraph, it says the word continue. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. And in 12, we practice. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. And in 12, we practice. But there is no point of the book where it says, now we are done. Now we don't have to do this anymore. I'm going to tell you a story. And she, she's perfectly okay with me telling you this story. I have a friend of mine who lives in Pennsylvania. Her name is Naomi. And I met Naomi in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, a number of years ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, I was doing a retreat, maybe 10. I was doing a retreat there, a big book weekend, a big book retreat. And we had a lovely group of people. And as we were breaking for lunch on Saturday, Naomi came up to me at the podium when we were breaking. And she said, when I'm done with the steps, may I call you? And I said, no. And she looked at me like I had three heads, like I was a purple people eater with three heads. And she said, why? Or something like that. And I said, because when you're done with the steps, you're dead. Because there's no stopping while we're alive. If I want to be in recovery, I'm going to have to work these steps. And I'm going to have to work these steps as if my life depended on it, because it does. Let's continue with the chapter. And why? I'm in the middle of 122. And why? Is it not because each wants to play the lead? Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he can take from the family life rather than give? And again, I hate to keep beating this point up over and over again, but we have to give rather than receive. I'm so given to wanting to take. I'm so prone to taking. Okay, quid pro quo. It's a Latin expression. You do this and I'll do that, right? Well, I'm going to do this, God. I'm going to work with this sponsee and I'm going to be a good boy and I'm going to stay out of the food. Now you get me a car and you get me a house and you get me a girl and you get me clothes. Got to have some money. Bring me some money, God. And when those things don't show up at the door, I get upset. But you know what does show up at the door? Opportunity for me to work toward those things. The opportunity has never been taken away from me. Let's continue because this next sentence is so important that I want you to be sure to forget it right away. Don't teach this to anybody else and don't remember this. Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. I'm going to read it again because it's very unimportant. Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained abnormal condition. Remember in chapter two, it says, 
something about uh, quitting drinking is just the first step and we have to keep working the steps. This is not a diet club. I am not knocking the pay and way places. I'm not knocking them. They're great and they serve a wonderful purpose. But at a pay and way, all they're concerned about is how much do you weigh? And if my weight is a certain number, that's great. And everybody thinks you're wonderful. And my weight is not a certain number, then I have failed for that week. And I'm not knocking that. That works for a lot of people. I've done it too. I've done it too. I've done the paying ways. What I have to remember is, yes, I have to cease food, but there's more to it than that. There's much more to it than that. And if all I'm going to do is just not eat, and what I'm doing then is I'm dieting with group support. And this is not about dieting with group support. This is not about me going home. I am home, but to me going home from a meeting and being stark raving abstinent, swinging from the chandeliers, stark raving abstinent. That is not what this is about. This is about having a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps so that I can go into my day and I do not have to be obsessed with food. I don't have to live that way. And when I live that way, I eat that way. And when I eat that way, my life just flat out sucks. Cessation of drinking is but the first step away from a highly strained, abnormal condition. Yes, I have to put the food down and then move on. Very important. A doctor said to us, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. Now, I never lived with an alcoholic, but I lived with two compulsive overeaters. My mother, as I've told you in this format many times, my mother was mentally ill. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a two-year-old. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic, or she could be a pretty together person. My dad was a wonderful guy. He was a great guy, but my dad was much older than the parents, than the fathers of my friends. My dad was 54 years old on the day that I was born. And so I'm 67. And when, my, when I was 13 years old or 14 years old, right, 13, when I was 13 years old, my dad was 67 years old. And I don't know about you, I'm 67 and I'm in a lot better shape physically than he was. I'm in a lot better shape financially than he was. I'm in a lot better shape in all areas of my life than he was, but I am in no way, shape or form able at this point to chase after a 13 year old or to be a father to a 13 year old. And my dad's big activity that we did together was mostly eating together 
and, and sitting around watching television. And those were basically the activities that we engaged in together as father and son. We didn't throw the ball around. We didn't ride bikes together, things like that. I don't know if this is why, but where I'm going with this and what I want to point out is I have been all of my life until not long ago, a very scared kid. When I was a little kid, even though my home life was certainly not ideal, when I was away from home, I would get really scared, sometimes to the point of tears. I was really scared of people. I was scared of things. I was scared of the unknown. And I still, to this day, have a fear of the unknown, the untested, the untried. I shy away from the things I don't know, even though that's the only way I can really grow is to experience those things, meet those people and walk down streets that I've never walked down before. How am I going to learn things that I like if I don't experience the unknown? How am I going to grow as a person if I shy away from anything that is untested or un, unfamiliar, unfamiliar to me. Well, I know intellectually that that's an impossible task because sometimes the best thing is to go and do things you've never done before. So you broaden your horizons, but instinctively and organically, I will shy away from those things. And I don't know if it's because my ACOA issues, ACOA, adult children of alcoholics, and I'm not endorsing them. I'm just saying maybe these are because of those issues and maybe they're just because I'm neurotic and crazy and, and, and nuts. I don't know. But the untested, the untried, the, the, the infamiliar, I don't like that. I like that homeostasis. I like homeostasis. What is homeostasis? An environment's ability to regulate its own sameness, its own you know, unchanging temperature, unchanging, whatever. I guess God knew where to put me. I'm in Arizona and the temperature really isn't going to change significantly until probably October. So I'm in the right place. I know when I'm, when I lived in Chicago, which I did, you know, my whole life, my whole growing up was in Chicago. You know what they say, if you don't like the weather in Chicago, just wait five minutes. And I have vivid memories of being a vendor at Cubs Park and Sox Park. And there'd be Memorial Days and Fourth of Julys and Labor Days where it would be hot as blazes and humid and really hot. And then there'd be days, even the Fourth of July, which is in the middle of the summer, where it would be freezing cold. We'd be, you know, just uh, just freezing, freezing cold. So anyway, God knew where to put me. I'm in Arizona, so the, the temperatures here really don't change. We have two seasons, hot and hotter. We have two seasons, hot and hotter. Okay, let's continue. But I just wanted to point out that when it says here, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. I don't know that I would professionally classify myself as neurotic, but I bet I'm pretty damn close. I'm pretty, pretty damn close because there's a lot of my responses that I recognize as being panic driven, even now in recovery. And I have to say, okay, Get yourself together, get yourself off in a corner. Let's do step 10. And what's the dishonesty? The dishonesty is 
you're only afraid because you've never walked down this street before. Okay, let's continue. The entire family is to some extent ill, and that was true in my family. Let families realize as they start their journey that all will be not, not be fair weather. Now, I'm going to turn it again. It says, let families realize as they start their journey that all will not be fair weather. Boys and girls, as you start your journey, journey of recovery, understand all will not be fair weather. That's why you have a book. That's why you have a phone. That's why you have a computer. That's why you have 104 of us on the line besides you. That's why you have your meetings. That's why you have what you have. The steps, a sponsor, a fellowship, a God squad, whatever it is you have. And if you don't have them, they're there. They're yours for the taking and they're free. All will not be fair weather. We've talked about that. Each in his turn may be footsore and may straggle. I in my turn may get footsore and I may straggle. How do I know that I may be footsore and may straggle? What is footsore and straggle? Footsore means I'm weary of doing this. And how do I keep my recovery fresh? How do I keep my recovery fresh is by working with new people, going to some meetings I've never been to before, hearing some sharing that I may never have been exposed to before. And these are some, but not all of the ways that I keep my program fresh. I do not fit OA into my life. I fit my life into OA. Without OA, I have no life. Now that said, I have to live to re I have to recover to live, not live to recover. I have to have a social life. I have to have, hopefully one day I'll have a romantic life. I have to have friends. I have to do things. I have to go enjoy uh, basketball games or, or baseball games, or I have to you know, be with my friends or play. You got to play a little bit. You got to play a little bit. But foot sore means I'm weary and straggle means I may get off course. So what it says here is each in his turn may get weary, get tired and may veer off course. I get tired of doing this. Well, how do I not get tired of it? By understanding first that without this, I have no life and by doing it differently, not always the same thing with the same person all the time. I have to shake it up a bit. Let's go to the top of 123. If I'm gonna do anything today, I hope that I'm gonna further your understanding that as we look at the chapter and what it says on the surface is great. However, what's also great is to turn these things in how we interact with ourselves. There will be alluring shortcuts and bypaths down which we may wander and lose their way. This is very simple. We may decide, and I, I've heard this a million times, I'm going this diet, I'm going that diet, I'm going this, I'm doing that. And that's great, that's fantastic. But if you are a true compulsive overeater, you're going to need to work the steps. 
And without the working of the steps, there is no spiritual awakening. And without the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, my brain is going to be so uncomfortable from not eating that eating will be a step up from where I am. And the food will go into my mouth. And when the food goes into my mouth, it's going to trigger the physical allergy. And when it triggers the physical allergy, I will not be able to control the amount I eat once I have started. And I am back in the throes of the disease. <sighs> okay. Page 123, near the top. Suppose we tell you some of the obstacles a family will meet. Notice it doesn't say may meet, might meet, should meet. It says will meet. Suppose we suggest how they may be avoided, even converted to good use for others. The family of an alcoholic longs for the return of happiness and security. Let's stop right there. When I was a little boy, I was not the hardest worker in the world. I was not from a long line of schwer arbiters. Schwer arbiters is hard workers. But we used to pick up some money shoveling snow for some of the neighbors. We had a, I had a, sh a snow shovel and we would knock on the door and we would say, can we shovel your snow? And they would say, okay, now do a good job. And they would give us $2 a piece or $1 a piece. And we thought we were millionaires. And then one day I got a job at a place on Devon Avenue, right off where I lived. I lived, I'm a West Rogers Park boy from Chicago. And Devon Avenue is the main drag down, down our section of Chicago. And I got a job for a dollar an hour. Dollar an hour, I got a job. And man, oh man, I went to work on Saturday. I went to work on Sunday and I brought home a total of $14. Wow, I had never had $14 in my life. Never have I ever in my life imagined that I would have $14. And I went directly to Rosen's Drugstore on Devon Avenue, and I bought enough Milk Duds, and I bought enough Almond Joy. I don't know who buys Mounds Bars. Obviously, these are not Jewish people, but okay. I bought enough Almond Joys, and I bought enough whatevers, Twinkies and Susie Q's and all that stuff to choke two horses. Twinkies at that time was 12 cents. 12 cents they were they used to cost 12 cents. Anyway, and I came home and I laid all this stuff out in my room. And I felt like a millionaire, billionaire, trillionaire. I mean, look at all the stuff that I had. Now that's a very strange idea of happiness and security today, but it wasn't strange then. The reason that I'm sharing this with you is because as we recover, the definitions of happiness, the definitions of security, the perceptions of happiness, 
the perceptions of security will change. They will change. I used to think I needed things, money, cars, houses, girls, whatever it was, a claim to make me happy. You know what makes me happy today? I would like more money, more this. I'm, I'm just as human as any of you. But you know what makes me happy today? I'm happy in the knowledge that I've not done anything yesterday or today or for 22 years that I would be ashamed if you found out. A very wise man, very mean man, very big man, told me on a Saturday afternoon in Chicago at a place called Parthenon. And he poked his big finger in my chest. And he said to me, if you wanna know if you're in recovery, if everything you did today, everywhere you went today, everything you said and everything that came in and out of your mouth was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? And for 22 years, I'm going to admit to you, I'm okay with that. I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything that I'm deeply ashamed of. Because once I start to engage in some behaviors that I don't want known, that is the penitentiary closing around me. So my idea of happiness and security is freedom, freedom. You ever watch the movie with uh, Mel Gibson? And he goes, freedom, freedom. I think it's called Braveheart. If I'm wrong, correct me. But he's, a, he's not a nice man. But anyway, that's okay. That's fine. That's for, another, that's for another topic of conversation. Freedom is what makes me happy today. Not having a bunch of milk duds not having a bunch of Susie Q's and chocolate milk and chocolate uh, almond joys and all this other stuff. What gives me happiness and security today is knowing that I didn't do anything today or yesterday that I'm ashamed of. I'm gonna go out to lunch when this is over and I'm gonna go out to the pita jungle and I don't have to fear who I'm gonna meet there because I owe them money. I don't have to fear who I'm gonna see there because I lied to them. I don't have to fear seeing anybody because I did something to them that I'm ashamed that I did. That's freedom. And freedom to me is happiness and security. And I'm secure in the knowledge that God is here and all is well. So the metamorphosis begins at an early age but what happiness and security are for me today is a very different thing than it was years ago. They remember when I'm at, I'm at 123 top paragraph. They remember when father was romantic, thoughtful, and successful. Today's life is measured against that of other years. And when it falls short, the family may be unhappy. Don't be unhappy with yourself. You have a disease. You have an illness, an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. Be merciful with yourself. Stay in recovery. 
Sometimes I've gotten this phone call too over the years. And I know we're going a little slower because I keep getting sidetracked, but this, this text demands this. When you, people have said this to me, when you say be nice to yourself and be gentle with yourself, I ate because I figure that's a way for me to be gentle with myself is I ate pudding or I ate cake at my daughter's wedding and I ate ice cream at my son's uh, birthday party. I never said that. I never, I never equated in words or thought that being kind to yourself means that you eat pudding or you eat ice cream at a birthday party. I never said that. What I said was be nice to yourself. And the way that I'm nice to myself today is to live in the sunlight of the spirit, not to gorge myself with food that I know will kill me. So when you're hearing me say, be loving towards yourself, I am not excusing binging. I'm not excusing an avoidance of steps. I'm not excusing working with others. I'm not excusing not, not going to meetings. Hold your feet to the fire, but in a loving, compassionate way. Don't go to meetings and work with your sponsor and work with others and do what you need to do because you have to. If, if that's what you have to do, then that's what you have to do. Do them because this is the easier, softer way. Do them because this is what gives you that security and that happiness. Happiness is not about things. It's about the way I feel. It's about the way I can walk down the street. Let's continue. Family confidence in dad is rising high. The good old days will soon be back, they think. Sometimes they demand that dad bring them back instantly. Be avoiding demanding that God bring them back instantly. That instantly is my ego, is the disease. My ego is all capital letters. I want this and I want her and I want that and I want there and this and this and that. No, 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 no. God speaks in small letters. He capitalizes the first letter of a sentence. He capitalizes proper nouns. He capitalizes where it's, where it's proper. But my rantings and raving have exclamation points after every sentence. God doesn't shout like that. You don't make demands. And there's an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. Instantly. That's the rantings and ravings of the demonic disease. What are the three jobs of the ego? What are the three jobs of the ego? Make me feel good right now. Make me different from everybody else and make me right. Alcoholics don't die from making mistakes. They die because they will defend those mistakes to the grave, never admitting that two and two is four rather than 137.9. Alcoholics will defend mistakes and they will erect all sorts of 
craziness around the mistakes. What are the three jobs of the ego? Make me right. Make me feel good right now. And make me different from everybody else. What are the words of the alcoholic that goes to heaven? God says, what happened? And, and, and I sent you meetings. I sent you a book. I sent you a fellowship. And the alcoholic, Clancy Emerson talked about this a million times. And, and Clancy would say, the alcoholic shakes his fist at God and says, you don't understand, God. My case is different. And we have all felt that. How many of us, I, I, don't, I don't have a poll that I can take here. I would bet, let me rephrase. I would bet that there's a large percentage of us that when we looked at these steps and we looked at this program of action, became convinced that it would never work for us. And when we gave it a chance and we opened up our minds and we got past this contempt prior to investigation, we saw beauty and abundance. And what was the most important thing that we saw was recovery. Bill says in his story, I saw, what did he see? He saw recovery in who? In Ebby. I felt, what did he feel? I, he felt hope. I believe, what did he believe? That God could and would if God were sought. I saw, I felt, I believed. And what does Bill write about at the end of his story? Certain trials and low spots, which almost drove me back to drink. But I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. It's right in Bill's story. And when the big book wants to teach me things, it teaches me through repetition. Repetition is a big key. It's called spiraling the information. These key points are brought up all through the book. Let's continue. God, they believe, almost owes this recompense on a long overdue account. But the head of the house has spent years in pulling down the structures of business, romance, friendship, health. These things are now ruined or damaged. It will take time to clear away the wreck. Though old buildings will eventually be replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. In order for us to often understand this, we have to look at it as a remodeling project. If you've ever had your home remodeled, or you know of a person who's had their home remodeled, when they first come in, it's chaos. When I was living in Oregon, we laid in new floors from one end of the house to the other. We had German shepherds. And German shepherds twice a day shed. And each shift is 12 hours in length. So they shed for 12 hours. Then they take a break. And then they shed for 12 more hours. This is what German shepherds do. And our house was so full of dog hair, you could have made four buses out of the dog. You could have knitted four buses out of the dog hair in our house. So we said, screw this. 
And we called up a couple of guys and they had a deal with my wife, which was at times I'm sure not pleasant because she she's the contractor's daughter. So she knows all the things, you know, she, she's the contractor's daughter. And they came in and we laid in a new heating and air conditioning system and we laid floor from one end to the other. There was not one square inch of carpeting in our home. And when we moved here to Scottsdale, we basically did the same thing. We had no carpeting whatsoever, except when we, no, we ripped that out too. We had no carpeting whatsoever in Scottsdale and we had no carpeting in Eugene, Oregon, none, zero. But at first the refrigerator was on the back patio. The stove was, was in the backyard. The, I mean, it was chaos. It looked like a, a tornado had hit the place and it just picked everything up and, and moved it. I mean, nothing was where it was supposed to be. And we would, we'd live in this room for a while and then we'd go live in that room for a while. And we'd go live in this room for a while. I mean, it was chaos. But what happened at the end? We had the most beautiful flooring you ever saw in your life. And we didn't have any carpeting to deal with anymore. So these, these German shepherds that were shedding in two 12-hour shifts per day, it was much, much more manageable and it was much more beautiful. We did countertops and we did a new heating and air conditioning system. We did a heat pump and I had them rip out the, um, the uh, what's the thing in the chimney, the stove, the hot, the wood stove, had them rip that out. I wanted a damn chimney. I didn't move to Oregon to have a wood stove. I moved there to play with a chimney so I could now play with the chimney. I never had that as a kid and it was glorious, but the remodeling was just murder, just murder. I know that's a belay, I know that's a, a labored metaphor, but I want you to just picture in your mind that when you're remodeling like this, it can be very, very difficult. It can be very, very difficult. We're gonna do one or two more paragraphs and then we're gonna be done for the day because it's almost time. Father knows he is to blame. It may take him many seasons of hard work to be restored financially, but he shouldn't be reproached. Perhaps he will never have much money again, but the wise family will admire him for what he is trying to be rather than what he is trying to get. And this is so key that it would be criminal not to talk about it for just the minute that we have left. I just want you to remember how important it is that what you want to get so much of the time gets lost. And what I want to get is recovery through a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. There is nothing that matters beyond that. I would love to have a Rolls Royce. I would love to be able to retire. I have to still work. I'm 67 years old. You know, I was working for, toward a retirement and then I got divorced and things started going downhill in the business and things are, are you know, very shaky and they still are. And it's been very, very much more difficult today than it was then. But what I want to remind you of is today, none of that stuff matters. I can work today. 
I am able to work today. I don't have to be retired. I can work. I'm fine. And that's all right. Now, what I want is recovery. Everything starts with recovery. Okay. We're done for today. We're going to pick it up.